Chapter Three of *The Return of the Soldier*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. *The Return of the Soldier* by Rebecca West. Chapter Three. Chris told the story lingeringly in loving detail. From Uncle Ambrose's gates, it seems, one took the path across the meadow where Whiston's cows are put to graze, passed through the second stile the one between the two big alders, into a long straight road that ran across the flatlands to Bray. After a mile or so there branched from it a private road that followed a line of noble poplars down to the ferry. Between two of them—he described it meticulously, as though it were of immense significance—there stood a white hawthorn. In front were the dark green glassy waters of an unvisited backwater, and beyond them a bright lawn set with many walnut-trees and a few great chestnuts, well lighted with their candles, and to the left of that a low white house with a green dome rising in its middle, and a veranda with a roof of hammered iron that had gone verdigris colour with age and the Thames weather. This was the Monkey Island Inn. The third Duke of Marlborough had built it for a folly and perching there with nothing but a line of walnut-trees and a fringe of lawn between it and the fast, full, shining Thames, it had an eighteenth-century grace and silliness. Well, one sounded the bell that hung on a post, and presently Margaret, in a white dress, would come out of the porch, and would walk to the stone steps down to the river. Invariably, as she passed the walnut-tree that overhung the path, she would pick a leaf, crush it, and sniff the sweet scent and as she came near the steps, she would shade her eyes and peer across the water. "'She is a little near-sighted. You can't imagine how sweet it makes her look,' Chris explained. I did not say that I had seen her, for indeed this Margaret I had never seen. A sudden serene gravity would show that she had seen one, and she would get into the four-foot punt that was used as a ferry, and bring it over very slowly with rather stiff movements of her long arms, to exactly the right place. When she had got the punt up on the gravel, her serious brow would relax, and she would smile at one and shake hands and say something friendly, like, "'Father thought she'd be over this afternoon, being so fine, so he saved some duck-eggs for tea.' And then one took the pole from her and brought her back to the island, though probably one did not mount the steps to the lawn for a long time. It was so good to sit in the punt by the landing-stage, while Margaret dabbled her hands in the black waters, and forgot her shyness as one talked. She's such good company. She's got an accurate mind that would have made her a good engineer, but when she picks up facts, she kind of gives them a motherly hug. She's charity and love itself." Again I did not say that I had seen her. If people drifted into tea, one had to talk to her while she cut the bread and butter and the sandwiches in the kitchen, but in this year of floods few visitors cared to try the hard rowing below Bray Lock. So usually one sat down there in the boat, talking with a sense of leisure, as though one had all the rest of one's life in which to carry on this conversation, and noting how the reflected ripple of the water made a bright, vibrant mark upon her throat, and other effects of the scene on her beauty until the afternoon grew drowsy, and she said, "'Father will be wanting his tea.' And they would go up and find old Allington in white ducks, standing in the fringe of long grasses and cow-parsley on the other edge of the island, looking to his poultry or his rabbits. He was a little man, 
with a tuft of copper-coloured hair rising from the middle of his forehead like a clown's curl, who shook hands hard and explained very soon that he was a rough diamond. Then they all had tea under the walnut-tree where the canary's cage was hanging, and the duck-eggs would be brought out, and Mr. Allington would talk much Thameside gossip how the lock-keeper at Teddington had had his back broken by a swan, mad as swans are in May, how they would lose their license at the Dovetail Arms if they were not careful, and how the man who kept the inn by Surly Hall was like to die, because after he had been cursing his daughter for two days for having run away with a soldier from Windsor Barracks, he had suddenly seen her white face in a clump of rushes in the river just under the hole in the garden fence. Margaret would sit quiet, round-eyed at the world's ways, and shy because of Chris. So they would sit on that bright lawn until the day was dyed with evening blue, and Mr. Allington was more and more often obliged to leap into the punt to chase his ducks, which had started on a trip to Bray Lock, or to crawl into the undergrowth after rabbits similarly demoralised by the dusk. Then Chris would say he had to go, and they would stand in a communing silence while the hearty voice of Mr. Allington shouted from midstream or under the alder boughs a disregarded invitation to stay and have a bite of supper. In the liquefaction of colours which happens on a Sunday evening, when the green grass seemed like a precious fluid poured out on the earth and dripping over to the river, and the chestnut candles were no longer proud flowers, but just wet, white lights and the humid mass of the tree when the brown earth seemed just a little denser than the water, Margaret also participated. Chris explained this part of his story stumblingly, but I too have watched people I loved in the dusk, and I know what he meant. As she sat in the punt while he ferried himself across, it was no longer visible that her fair hair curled differently, and that its rather wandering parting was a little on one side, that her straight brows, which were a little darker than her hair, were nearly always contracted in a frown of conscientious speculation, that her mouth and chin were noble, yet as delicate as flowers, that her shoulders were slightly hunched, because her young body, like a lily-stem, found it difficult to manage its own tallness. She was then just a girl in white who lifted a white face or drooped a dull gold head. Then she was nearer to him than at any other time. That he loved her in this twilight which obscured all the physical details which he adored, seemed to him a guarantee that theirs was a changeless love which would persist if she were old or maimed or disfigured. He stood beside the crazy post where the bell hung and watched the white figure take the punt over the black waters, mount the grey steps, and assume some of their greyness, become a green shade in the green darkness of the foliage-darkened lawn, and he exulted in that guarantee. How long this went on, he had forgotten, but it continued for some time before there came the end of his life, the last day he could remember. I was barred out of that day. His lips told me of its physical appearances, while from his wet, bright eyes and his flushed skin, his beautiful signs of a noble excitement, I tried to derive the real story. It seemed that the day when he bicycled over to Monkey Island, happy because Uncle Ambrose had gone up to town and he could stay to supper with the Allingtons, was the most glorious day the year had yet brought. The whole world seemed melting into light. Cumulus clouds floated very high, like lumps of white light, against a deep glowing sky, and dropped dazzling reflections on the beaming Thames. The trees moved not like timber, shocked by wind, but floatingly, like weeds at the bottom of a well of sunshine. 
When Margaret came out on the porch and paused, as she always did, to crush and smell the walnut-leaf and shade her eyes with her hand, her white dress shone like silver. She brought the punt across and said very primly, "'Dad'll be disappointed. He's gone up to town on business,' and answered gravely, "'That is very kind of you,' when he took the punt-pole from her, and said laughingly, "'Never mind. I'll come and see you all the same.' I could see them as Chris spoke, so young and pale and solemn, with the intense light spilling all around them. That afternoon they did not sit in the punt by the landing-stage, but wandered about the island and played with the rabbits, and looked at the ducks, and were inordinately silent. For a long time they stood in the fringe of rough grass on the other side of the island, and Margaret breathed contentedly that the Thames was so beautiful. Past the spit of sand at the far end of the island, where a great swan swank to the empty reach that it would protect its mate against all comers, the river opened to a silver breadth between flat meadows stretching back to far rows of pin-thick black poplars, until it wound away to Windsor behind a line of high trees, whose heads were bronzed with unopened buds, and whose flanks were hidden by a head of copper beech and crimson and white hawthorn. Chris said he would take her down to Dorney Lock in the skiff, and she got in very silently and obediently. But as soon as they were out in midstream, she developed a sense of duty, and said that she could not leave the inn with just that boy to look after it. And then she went into the kitchen, and sucking in her lower lip for shyness, very conscientiously cut piles of bread and butter in case some visitors came to tea. Just when Chris was convincing her of the impossibility of any visitors arriving, they came, a fat woman in a luscious pink blouse, and an old chap who had been rowing in a tweed waistcoat. Chris went out, though Margaret laughed and trembled and begged him not to, and waited on them. It should have been a great lark, but suddenly he hated them, and when they offered him a tip for pushing the boat off, he snarled absurdly and ran back, miraculously relieved, to the bar-parlour. Still Margaret would not leave the island. Supposing, she said, that Mr. Leroyd comes for his ale. But she consented to walk with him to the wild part of the island, where poplars and alders and willows grew round a clearing, in which white willow-herb and purple fig-wort, and here and there a potato-flower, last ailing consequence of one of Mr. Allington's least successful enterprises, fought down to the fringe of iris on the river's lip. In this gentle jungle was a rustic seat, relic of a reckless aspiration on the part of Mr. Allington, to make this a pleasure-garden. And on this they sat until a pale moon appeared above the green cornfield on the other side of the river. "'Not six yet,' he said, taking out his watch. "'Not six yet,' she repeated. Words seemed to bear more significance than they had ever borne before. Then a heron flapped gigantic in front of the moon, and swung in wide circles round the willow-tree before them. "'Oh, look!' she cried. He seized the hand she flung upward, and gathered her into his arms. They were so for long, while the great bird's wings beat about them. Afterward she pulled at his hand. She wanted to go back across the lawn and walk round the inn, which looked mournful, as unlit houses do by dusk. They passed beside the green and white stucco barrier of the veranda, and stood on the three-cornered lawn that shelved high over the stream at the island's end, regarding the river, which was now something more wonderful than water, because it had taken to its bosom the rose and amber glories of the sunset smouldering behind the elms and bray church-tower. Birds sat on the telegraph-wires that spanned the river, as the black notes sit on a staff of music. 
Then she went to the window of the parlour, and rested her cheek against the glass, looking in. The little room was sad with twilight, and there was nothing to be seen but Margaret's sewing-machine on the table, and the enlarged photograph of Margaret's mother over the mantelpiece, and the views of Tintern Abbey framed in red plush, and on the floor, the marigold pattern making itself felt through the dusk, Mr. Allington's carpet slippers. "'Think of me sitting in there,' she whispered, "'not knowing you loved me.' Then they went to the bar and drank milk, while she walked about fingering familiar things with an absurd expression of exultation, as though that day she was fond of everything, even the handles of the beer-engine. When there had descended on them a night as brilliant as the day, he drew her out into the darkness, which was sweet with the scent of walnut-leaves, and they went across the lawn, bending beneath the chestnut-boughs, not to the wild part of the island, but to a circle of smooth turf divided from it by a railing of wrought iron. On this stood a small Greek temple, looking very lovely in the moonlight. He had never brought Margaret here before, because Mr. Allington had once told him, spatulate forefinger at his nose, that it had been built for the Duke for his excesses, and it was in the quality of his love for her that he could not bear to think of her in association with anything base. But to-night there was nothing anywhere but beauty. He lifted her in his arms, and carried her within the columns, and made her stand in a niche above the altar. A strong stream of moonlight rushed upon her there. By its light he could not tell if her hair was white as silver, or yellow as gold, and again he was filled with exultation, because he knew that it would not have mattered if it had been white. His love was changeless. Lifting her down from the niche, he told her so and as he spoke, her warm body melted to nothingness in his arms. The columns that had stood so hard and black against the quivering tide of moonlight and starlight seemed to totter and dissolve. He was lying in a hateful world where barbed wire entanglements showed impish knots against a livid sky, full of blooming noise and splashes of fire and wails for water, and his back was hurting intolerably. Chris fell to blowing out the candles and I, perhaps because the egotistical part of me was looking for something to say that would make him feel me devoted and intimate, could not speak. Suddenly he desisted, stared at a candle-flame, and said, "'If you had seen the way she rested her cheek against the glass, and looked into the little room, you'd understand that I can't say—yes, Kitty's my wife, and Margaret somehow does nothing at all.' "'Of course you can't,' I murmured sympathetically. We gripped hands, and he brought down on our conversation the finality of darkness. End of chapter 3